Chapter 4 Chapter 4 The Nature of Demand Section 1 The Comparison of Goods in Man's Thought 1. As wants differ in kind and degree, so goods differ in their power to gratify wants. This general and simple statement unites the leading thoughts of the two chapters preceding. Confirmation of its truth may be found in observation and experience. The purpose of this chapter is to show how, starting from the general nature of wants and the nature of goods, we can arrive at an explanation of the exchange of goods. Recognizing the simple but fundamental facts stated at the opening of this paragraph, an exchange may be seen to be a rational and a logical result when men are living together in society. 2. Immediately enjoyable goods are the first objective things whose value is to be explained. Goods come into relation with wants in a multitude of ways. Some things will not gratify a want until after the lapse of a long time, as ice cut in December and stored for summer use. Other things will never themselves directly gratify a want, but will be of help in getting things that do. Such are the young fruit trees planted in the orchard and the hammer that will be used to drive nails in a house that will shelter men. Still other things are gratifying wants at this moment, or are ready for use and will be used up in a very short time. Examples of such are the food on the table and in the pantry, and the cigar in the pocket. All these things are called goods because of their beneficial relation to man's desires. But the relation is very immediate in some cases, very remote in others. The value of all goods is to be explained, but the explanation will be more or less complex according to the directness or indirectness of their relation with wants. As it is the power of goods to gratify wants that alone causes value to be attributed to them, those goods which are ripest, which are ready to gratify wants, are nearest to the source of an explanation. The value of unripe enjoyments must be traced to some expected gratification as its cause or basis. In order to attack the difficulties one by one, we will, therefore, in the following discussion, deal first with this class of ripe, consumable goods as food personal services, enjoyments of any sort that are immediately available. The explanation of these cases of value must precede that of cases in which the relation to wants is less obvious and direct. 3. As the amount of any good increases, after a certain point the gratification that the added portions afford decreases. This is called the law of the diminishing utility of goods, or of the decreasing gratification afforded by goods. The reason for the truth of this proposition is found in the very nature of man and his nervous organization. Any stimulus to the nerves, however pleasant at first, becomes painful when long continued or increased unduly. The trumpet, too distant at first for the ear to distinguish its notes, may swell to pleasing tones as it approaches until at length its volume and its din may become absolutely painful. 
If we were to express the degree of gratification by a curve, we would see the curve rising gradually to a maximum and then falling somewhat suddenly and becoming a negative quantity when pain, not pleasure, resulted. The same change could be illustrated by any sensation or by any of men's activities. The proposition must be understood as applying to the gratification resulting from each added portion of the sensation. There is a maximum point in the gratification afforded by any nerve stimulus. A man coming in from the winter's storm and holding out his hands before the fire feels an intense pleasure in the grateful warmth. A few moments later, the same heat becomes unpleasant. In winter, we wish for a moderation of the temperature. On the sultry days of summer, we think of a cool breeze as the most to be desired of all things. Whether the temperature rises or falls, there is a point beyond which the change is no longer an addition to, but a subtraction from pleasure. A man, however hungry at first, may be made miserable if forced to eat beyond his capacity. Each added portion of the good consumed contributes to the gratification up to a certain point. The sum of these pleasurable sensations may be called the total gratification, which finally reaches satisfaction or fullness. Then begins what may be called, in algebraic phrase, a negative gratification, which, if it becomes large enough, will make the total gratification a negative quantity. Each added portion dose or increment beyond a certain point reduces thus the welfare of the user. One may have too much of a good thing. 4. Marginal utility is the gratification afforded by the added portion of the good. The marginal dose, increment, or portion is that which may be logically considered as coming last in the case of any good or group of goods divisible into small parts. In considering the strict theory of the case, in order to get at the principle involved, the doses may be spoken of as infinitesimally small. The marginal utility expresses the importance that men attach to one unit of this kind of goods under the particular circumstances at the moment existing, and not under certain conceivable conditions which do not in fact exist or need to be taken into account by the persons affected. The marginal unit of a homogeneous supply cannot be considered to have a greater utility than any other unit at the moment. Therefore, the product of the marginal utility by the number of units gives the total measure of importance of the supply then and there, and this is the value. The value of goods, as has been indicated, is the measure of the dependence felt by men on a portion of the outer world, as the condition of gratifying their wants. From the very nature of wants, which reside in feelings, a dependence that is not felt, a relationship between things and gratifications that is not recognized, can have no influence on value. Now, it is at this margin of supply that dependence is felt. Men do not concern themselves about that which they have in superfluity, unless indeed the excess causes them some discomfort. 
It is well that they do not, for a wise direction of effort can only take place when men think mainly of their need of things that they want and want most, and direct their efforts towards securing them. The diminishing utility of successive portions, doses or increments as they are called, may be represented by a curve of utility. The diagram is constructed on the hypothesis that a tenth unit of a certain good would have a utility expressed as 36, a fifteenth unit of 30, etc., and that the value of the whole supply is estimated according to these marginal units. Of course, if the conditions were that all or none was to be taken, the result would be different. Unit of supply 10, marginal utility 36, value of whole supply 360. Unit of supply 15, marginal utility 30, value of whole supply 450. Unit of supply 20, marginal utility 25, value of whole supply 500. Unit of supply 30, marginal utility 19, value of whole supply 570. Unit of supply 40, marginal utility 15, value of whole supply 600. Unit of supply 50, marginal utility 10, value of whole supply 500. Unit of supply 60, marginal utility 5, value of whole supply 300. This diagram is frequently used and it is important to guard against some misunderstandings. The marginal unit of any given supply, for example 10 units, is not any particular unit, it is any one of the 10 units. In the presence of 9 units of the good, the person or persons find all the various wants that are dependent on that good gratified to such a degree that the tenth unit has an importance expressed by 36. But as this last or marginal unit of supply may be used for any of the purposes, the importance of each and every unit likewise will be expressed by 36. Any one of the units, when once present, is, in a logical sense, a marginal unit. When, however, it is a question of increasing the supply, some one unit may properly be looked upon as marginal. The dependence felt by men on the whole group is the product of the units by the marginal utility. As the number of units increases, the marginal utility decreases until, at length, it may reach zero, and the total value would be nothing. A point of maximum value evidently will be found somewhere between the two extremes. Note carefully that on the one diagram are represented a large number of marginal utilities, which never exist at one and the same moment. At any one moment there is a given number of units and there is but one marginal utility, and this is the same for each of the units. It is quite erroneous to say that when there are 30 units, the utility of the 10th unit is 36, of the 20th, 25, of the 30th, 19. 
it is equally incorrect to say that when there are 60 units, the total utility is equal to the area between the right angle and the curve A through G, while the value is equal to the rectangle below and to the left of the point G. The curve from A to G but marks the height of marginal utilities that have no existence when the supply is 30. The total utility, often spoken of in this connection, if it has any existence, certainly cannot be calculated. The diagram must be understood as representing indicatively at any given moment but one marginal utility, the same for every unit of like goods. The other perpendicular lines are expressed in the conditional mood. They are what the marginal utility would be were the number of units different. 5. Since goods possess utility only as they gratify wants, it follows that if wants change, the utility changes. Utility does not rest unchanging in the goods as something intrinsic, but it depends on the relation of goods to men. This truth, unrecognized for many centuries, is now seen to be fundamental to the whole problem of value. The portions of a good added later do not appeal to the same man as the earlier portions. The man has been changed by what he has enjoyed. In changing his feelings, goods have also changed his wants. Hence, the added portions of the good are changed in respect to their utility or power to gratify a man's wants. Though physically and chemically, i.e. in every material way, they are exactly like the earlier portions, they cannot have the same want-gratifying power until he again changes, for they are not in the presence of the same feelings. Wants are constantly shifting. The different kinds of goods are compared in man's thought and arranged on a scale at every moment according to their felt utility. An increase in the amount of a good will drop the marginal utility of the added portions down the scale of usefulness for the next moment. When we rise in the morning, we want our breakfast. The breakfast eaten, another breakfast, does not appeal to us. Our tasks done, we want a boat ride or go golfing. Then, appetite returning, we are tempted to our dinner. And thus, from hour to hour, wants are gratified, are altered, and are shifted until, wearied with the day's labor and pastimes, we go to rest. In a well-ordered life, in an advanced economic society, the means for gratifying our wants as they arise are provided in advance. The changing series of desires is met by a changing series of goods. Life has been defined as a constant adjustment of inner relations to outer conditions. Economic life is therefore like physical life, a constant adjustment. And this adjustment of goods but reflects the shifting and adjustment of feelings. 6. The substitution of goods in men's thought is the shifting of the choice from a good that does not give the highest gratification economically possible at the time to another good that does. The shifting that takes place on the scale of gratification makes it necessary for man to shift constantly his choice of goods. This again is the problem of economy. 
Waste results when goods continue to be used to secure a lower degree of gratification, if they might be used to secure a higher. The change of choice may be because of a change in the man or because of a change in the quality or the quantity of the goods or because of a change in the ratio at which the goods can be secured. Section 2. Demand for goods grows out of subjective comparisons. 1. Demand is desire for goods united with the power to give something in exchange. An example frequently given to show the difference between desire and demand is the hungry boy looking longingly at the sweetmeats in the confectioner's window. He represents desire, but not until the kind-hearted gentleman gives him a nickel does he represent effective demand. Desire, therefore, must be united with power to give something in exchange before it can be called demand. It must be for something that is attainable, yearning for something beyond reach. Sighing for the moon is desire that can never become effective demand. 2. Demand is the social aspect of the individual man's comparison of utilities. It is the expression of the man's wish to substitute some of his goods for someone else's goods in order to get a higher satisfaction. This comparison is often made between two goods owned in different quantities. When men are constantly comparing things in their own possession, it is a short step to compare their goods with their neighbors. Demand for consumption goods is thus the manifestation of the man's desire to redistribute his enjoyments. In demand for goods, men virtually say, part of what I have I am ready to give for part of what you have. The strength of their desire is expressed by the amount of their offer. When he makes this comparison and this offer, man enters into a social-economic relation with his fellows. 3. The law of individual demand is the trader will reduce his stock of a particular good to the point where its marginal utility equals that of the alternative goods. The greater the divergence in his estimates of the marginal utilities of two goods, the more ready is he to trade the lower utility for the higher one. Exchange is but the effort to adjust goods to wants in the best way. The less useful, marginally viewed, is traded for the more useful. The greater the difference, in the one trader's judgment, between the marginal utilities of the two goods, the greater is the maladjustment and the greater, therefore, is the motive to seek readjustment by means of exchange. As the quantity of the good parted with declines, its marginal utility increases, and as more of the other good is acquired, its marginal utility declines. The marginal utility of the two exchangeable units must come to equilibrium in the individual's judgment. At this point, demand ceases, not because an additional unit of the one good could afford no gratification, but because it would afford less gratification than the other good in which demand must be expressed to be effectual. 4. 
Demand thus varies at different ratios of exchange between goods and may be expressed graphically by a demand curve. This would show for any one man the decline of the marginal utility of each added portion of a good. And these individual demand curves may be united into a demand curve for a group of men. The demand curve expresses graphically what a man would be willing to pay at each particular stage in the increase of goods. We have here come to the very threshold of the subject of markets and exchange. 5. Elasticity of demand, in the case of any good, expresses the degree in which a change in its ratio to other goods will increase the demand. Elasticity varies for different classes of men according to their wealth and to the cost of the goods. If strawberries are a dollar a box in the city market, a slight fall in the price, say to 75 cents, will increase the demand but slightly. But if the price is 15 cents and falls to 10, the increase in the demand will be marked, for the number of consumers to whom a difference of 5 cents is important is then very great. The demand for the staples is comparatively inelastic. A certain amount of simple food is necessary to support life. An increase in its price will not...